now invite you to open your Bibles so that we can both read and hear the words of the one who reigns forevermore. So please turn with me in your copy of the scriptures to Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3, verses 1 to 30. And let's ask the Lord for his help as we approach his word. Let's pray. Father, we draw near to you this morning and ask that through the preaching of your word that you would show your children the glory of our Savior so that we might be comforted and strengthened in your presence. Remind us of your sovereign saving power, that you alone are God and there is no other, that you alone are worthy of all our worship, that you alone sustain your people through Jesus Christ. Lord, hold fast to us, we pray, so that we may stand firm and defiant when the world demands our worship. Give us grace in our weakness, that our witness to Christ might be clear and our love for one another evident in a world that is hostile to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. It is said that those who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Those who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it. And that was certainly the case with one man, the Iraqi president, Saddam Hussein. It was well known that Saddam was obsessed with Nebuchadnezzar, the ancient king of Babylon. Saddam saw himself as a modern reincarnation of King Nebuchadnezzar. So in the late 1980s, he promoted the Iraqi arts festival called From Nebuchadnezzar to Saddam Hussein. He also had a replica of Nebuchadnezzar's war chariot built and then had himself photographed standing in it. Like he and Nebuchadnezzar were buddies. And then he ordered images of himself and Nebuchadnezzar beamed side by side into the night sky over Baghdad as part of a laser light show. So he was Nebuchadnezzar's greatest fan. He also spent millions trying to rebuild the ancient site of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar's capital city. Saddam demanded the unconditional loyalty of his people and often secured it at the point of a gun and other atrocities. It was clear that despite his religious beliefs, the only person that Saddam cared about was himself. He was an idolater, worshipping the god of self, and that became even more clear as he erected several images, statues of him, all over the land. But the one statue that most people remember is that 40 feet bronze statue that he erected in 2002 in Baghdad's Firdos Square. And just one year later, that very same statue was destroyed by Iraqi civilians and the U.S. Marines. If you remember, that was an event that was widely telecast for the world to see. Everyone who saw it knew that the toppling of that statue meant and symbolized the end of Saddam's narcissistic rule in Iraq. Now, thousands of years before Saddam, the man he admired, King Nebuchadnezzar, 
in the 6th century BC also built a statue, an image in his honor. And that story is recorded for us in Daniel chapter 3. So look at Daniel chapter 3. The book opens, the book of Daniel opens by telling us how King Nebuchadnezzar had besieged Jerusalem. And he had taken many Israelites as captives into his kingdom. And among these exiles were Daniel and his friends. But as the author tells us the story, he also makes it very clear that all of this was ordained by God. It was the Lord God, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who gave the people of Israel into Nebuchadnezzar's hand as an act of judgment. It was an act of divine judgment for Israel's idolatry and covenant unfaithfulness. And the prophet Jeremiah prophesied that this would happen. But he also told the people of Israel what to do once they found themselves in exile. They were to seek the welfare of the city. They were also to trust in God's word of promise. A promise that in due time, God would deliver his people, not just from physical exile, but from their spiritual exile. God would one day put an end to their sin problem. He would send them a Messiah from the royal line of David to deal with their sin and usher in an everlasting kingdom. Now in the first chapter, it's revealed to us that Daniel and his friends trusted in God and they made their allegiance, their loyalty to God publicly known. Despite the pressure to conform to the Babylonian culture and various philosophies, Daniel and his friends demonstrated great humility in trusting the Lord and the Lord sustained them by His grace. He preserved them. He gave them wisdom and understanding to see that idolatrous temptations were futile. He helped them see idolatrous temptations for what they truly were. And He also gave them the courage to remain steadfast in their covenant allegiance to Him. In chapter 2, we are told that the king had a dream in which he saw a gigantic statue. Look at chapter 2, verse 32. Its head was made of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron and its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And then the king saw in his vision how a small stone cut by no human hand destroyed the entire statue, just pulverized it till it was no more. And that stone grew into a huge mountain and filled the earth. Now, none of Nebuchadnezzar's wise men were able to tell or interpret the king's troubling dream. But Daniel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord revealed to Daniel what was going to become of Nebuchadnezzar's empire. Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar that the God of Israel, the God of heaven, was the one who removes kings and sets up kings. He was the one who had given the kingdom of Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar in the first place. And soon he was going to take it away. Each one of the metals in the statue represented a subsequent kingdom, one more powerful than the other. After Babylon would come the Medo-Persian Empire, then the Greeks, and then Rome. And in the days of the Romans, God would send His Messiah, whose coming would inaugurate the beginning of the end of every earthly kingdom. And His kingdom, the Messiah's kingdom, would last forever. Now, upon hearing this from Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar was very impressed. He was impressed with the power of Daniel's God to reveal mysteries. And so he gave Daniel great honors and he kept him close by just in case he needed him again. He kept him close by at the king's court. 
And upon his request, he also promoted his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He appointed them over the affairs of the province of Babylon. And I wish I could say, and they all lived happily ever after. But not in Babylon. Not for them, and not for us. You see, Isaiah speaks of the Babylonian exile in Isaiah 48, verse 10. This is how he describes it. He describes it as the furnace of affliction. That's Babylon. And in the book of Revelation, the name Babylon is symbolic of the kingdoms of this world. Babylon is not friendly towards those who swear allegiance to the one true God. Babylon demands our worship. Now, as Christians, we too, like Daniel, are living in a world that is not our home. And just as Daniel and his friends longed for their homeland, we too long for that heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, the promised land of the new earth. The kingdom of God has been inaugurated in Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection and ascension. But it will only be fully here when Christ returns. Until then, we will face many trials as we sojourn in this world as strangers and exiles. And so we should not be surprised when trials come. If you are a Christian, your Babylon is where you live. Our Babylon, in God's providence, is the UAE. And no matter how much the government and the media want you to believe how awesome everything is here, this is not where we will get our happily ever after. No, the kingdoms of this world are doomed to pass away. But there is a glorious kingdom coming. A happy land of which you and I are citizens. But in Babylon, we will have trouble. But take heart, because our Savior, of whose kingdom this book talks about, he has overcome the world. Now God had prepared Daniel and his friends for this moment. He sovereignly ordained their first test of faith, if you remember. And they trusted in him and refused the food that was offered to idols, and after three years of training, they were threatened with a death sentence. But once again, they looked to God, and God revealed the king's dream to Daniel, and they were delivered from death through God's revelation and Daniel's mediation. And now again, these men faced the pressures of idolatry, of the very kind that brought God's judgment on the nation of Israel in the first place. And so here's what we'll get to see in this fascinating account. We'll get to see in this passage, number one, the pressures of idolatry. Number two, the prejudice of the ungodly. Three, the perseverance of the faithful. And four, the presence of a deliverer. I'll say that again. The pressures of idolatry, the prejudice of the ungodly, the perseverance of the faithful, and the presence of a deliverer. But first, let's see how Nebuchadnezzar responds after hearing about God's coming kingdom. Look at verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Now, if you remember that in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar was greatly troubled by the dream he had. He lost sleep over it. He saw a statue made up of different metals, each symbolizing a kingdom. And the head of the statue was made of gold. You remember what Daniel said, that represents you, O king. And so Nebuchadnezzar's reign had an expiry date. 
another kingdom was coming. And in response to that revelation, what does Nebuchadnezzar do? Well, he doesn't reflect on his mortality and consider his ways before the Almighty God of heaven who gave his kingdom into his power. Instead, he was impressed with God's power. He was impressed with God's power to reveal dreams through Daniel. So Nebuchadnezzar stands in awe of Daniel doing his thing. And he says, wow, that is so cool. Your God is amazing. He is the God of gods and the Lord of kings. First prize goes to your God, Daniel. Well done. Beloved, if your heart worships power, if it's captivated by power, guess what your heart will love? Displays of power. Your God can reveal mysteries? Oh, that's cool. What else can he do? See, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't get it, does he? You see, our responses reveal the idols of our hearts. Friends, idols are not just images of stone or wood. They can be anything that your heart desires, loves, enjoys, and treasures more than God. If the idol of your heart is power, if that's what you love, that's what you crave, that's what gets you most excited, that's what you daydream about, then here's what you will hate. You will hate the very opposite. You will hate humility. You will hate humiliation. You will hate insignificance. You will hate weakness. You will fear sickness. You will fear death. You will ultimately despise creatureliness. You will hate those things. You will fear those things because they threaten your God. They get in the way of your worship. You see, Nebuchadnezzar may have had several Babylonian gods, but they were all means to an end. His real God is himself. What he wants. And if you are caught up in this sort of idolatry, you will be blind and deaf to God's word. Your heart will be hardened. We know Nebuchadnezzar doesn't get it, because look what he does. He builds an image of gold, probably of himself. After hearing God say to him, you're not going to last forever, pal. God's kingdom is coming that will shatter every other kingdom. Nebuchadnezzar's response is, oh, then I need to ensure... And my kingdom will last forever. I won't be just the head of gold. I will change my future. The entire statue from head to toe will be of gold. And so he makes this obscene statue, this image of gold, 60 cubits by 6 cubits. That's equivalent to 90 feet by 9 feet. So it's tall and skinny. It's golden, shiny, dazzling. He wants it to be seen, so he sets it up on a plain, no obstructions. He puts it on the plain of Dura, six miles southeast of the city, and he sets it up. He sets it up. Notice how many times the phrase set up is used. It's repeated nine times. Imagine that. Nine times in this passage. This is the writer's way of mocking Nebuchadnezzar's folly. This is the Holy Spirit's way of mocking false worship. Remember Daniel 2 verse 21? What does Daniel say? God is the one who sets up kings and kingdoms. And here we see the great rebellion of self-worship. I will set up. But Nebuchadnezzar is not happy with merely setting up this monument in his honor. No, he wants the entire kingdom 
to worship him and his kingdom values and his kingdom purposes. Worship me by worshiping my golden image. He's exchanged the truth for a lie, hasn't he? He serves the creature, not the creator. He does not serve the God of heaven. And now he seeks the glory that belongs to God alone. And so he demands it. He demands worship. And he starts with his government officials, with those who are the most powerful. Look at verses 2 to 4. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Now, who are all these people? Well, the satraps were chief representatives of the king, powerful men. Prefects were either military commanders or provincial rulers. Governors were civil administrators. Counselors were royal advisors, treasurers, administered, of course, the funds of the kingdom. Justices were administrators of law. Magistrates were judges who passed judgments in keeping with the law. And all the officials of the provinces were probably subordinates of the satraps or prefects. So these were the movers and shakers of the kingdom. Anybody who somebody is summoned. Nebuchadnezzar called them. And then the writer could have just said, and everyone came. But that's not what he says. Look at verse 3. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. What does that tell you? Nobody objected. No questions were asked. Despite their great learning and lofty positions in government, like mindless fools, they, they were called and they came. A whistle was blown and like well-trained dogs, they came running. See, these were men who had the most to lose. Power, position, control. So they came. Friends, we live in a land whose chief idols are money, power, and reputation. You know that very well. And these idols are not planted on a plain in Dura, but they are in the hearts of people. You know, what rules your heart will be evident in your life. It will be evident in your words and in your actions. If your idol is control, if that's what you worship, then uncertainty will drive you nuts. And you will worry all the time because your idol will be constantly threatened by uncertainties. And you will become like what you worship, controlling manipulated in your words and your actions and people around you will feel suffocated they'll feel condemned what rules your hearts will be evident in your words and in your actions but like we see in the story idolatry or false worship the worship of these idols starts from the top and it trickles down 
You see, false worship always has its own set of service leaders who lead from the front. But remember that those who are captivated with false gods are never content to keep their idolatry private. Why? Because false gods and the demonic forces behind all such idolatry desire glory for themselves to make their name known. They wish to make their own disciples, to deceive and conform people. And that's what happens. As soon as the top brass arrived, a call to worship was sounded. Look at verse 4. And the herald proclaimed aloud. So here's that twisted call to false worship. You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. So as soon as the band plays, as soon as you hear the music, that's your cue to worship. But there are also consequences if you do not get with the government-sponsored program. Look at verse 6. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. You either comply or be roasted alive. Your choice. Friends, this is what happens when the government tries to play God. The pressure to conform will be real and powerful. Just like it was for Daniel's friends. But get this. There will always be something in it that will appeal to you. That's the part the music plays. See, the music is there to aid your worship, to move you along. So whatever objections you may have, whatever resistance you may feel, whatever arguments you may have, when you see the weight of government power behind this endeavor, when you see the vast crowds, the majority of citizens and exiles and various people groups, no one's objecting, everybody's doing it, the music will ease you into compliance. You know, today the way we're often seduced into the mindless submission of idolatry is not through musical instruments like this, played before a golden image, but it comes through the constant barrage of advertising, media propaganda, the elevation and celebration of godless cultural values. You know, if you push the social virtue of tolerance long enough, if you hear the constant drumbeats of inclusivism, soon you will find yourself whistling its tune. You know, when I first read about Muslim government officials laying the foundation stone for a Hindu temple in Abu Dhabi, I was shocked. Aren't these guys monotheists, I thought? But then after thinking about it more carefully, I realized that this was the grand finish to an orchestra that had been playing for a long time. Brothers, this is the case with any kind of idolatry. If you elevate the idols of health and prosperity long enough, if you're seduced by that music, it won't be long before you're agreeing with the government that in the name of the God of health, local churches shouldn't gather. Even though it goes against what God has commanded. See, on the plain of Dura, these crowds were called and the crowds bowed down. Verse 7. 
Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Again, notice the way these instruments are named and repeated. It's redundant, isn't it? It's the same thing, same list again and again. But that's the point. Idolatry is mindless. It's repetitious. If your idol is pleasure, think about how you give in to that pleasure. How you're seduced into pornography. Just mindlessly. See, these people were behaving like robots. There would have been many Jewish exiles in this crowd. And yet, here they are, participating in the very thing that had brought God's judgment on them. But did you notice how clean and sanitized this false worship is? So clean. You know, if I present to you a grotesque-looking idol made out of stone, and then ask you to outrightly deny Christ, you won't do it. Satan knows you won't do it. Satan and his minions know that. But he knows you're more likely to succumb to idolatry if all its religious decorations, all the trappings are removed. No priests, no incense, no chanting. No, this is all done in the name of one man. One man, King Nebuchadnezzar. Show your allegiance to me by worshipping what I value, my image. See, the way idolatry is presented in, in Daniel is that it highlights self-worship. When the government starts to play God, they will start to define what is good and what is bad. They will tell you what is virtuous and what is offensive. They will tell you what is loving and what is unloving. They will dictate what is essential and what is optional. They will tell you what is important for human flourishing and what is not. And they will do all of that, just like Adam and Eve, apart from the word of God. You know, if the last few years was about the worship of health and power, in the coming years, you will see the worship of the earth being propagated. Already we are hearing terms like climate justice being introduced in the media. Watch out. Friends, the defining characteristic of this kind of idolatry is that it points to man. And here on the plains of Dura, it looked like it was an overwhelming success. People were bowing down, except few. You see, there were some who refused to bow down and worship the image. And that was not received well. Which brings us to our second point, the prejudice of the ungodly. Look at verses 8 to 12. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. If you remember, these Chaldeans were the wise men in Nebuchadnezzar's court. And now they make it their aim to do harm to the Jews. The text says that they maliciously accused them. Uh, that phrase um, translates the Hebrew idiom, they ate the pieces of the Jews. They ate the pieces of the Jews. You know, the writer describes these men as beastly, wanting to eat the pieces of the Jews, wanting to devour them. 
Now, who should that remind you of? Satan. 1 Peter 5.8, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. You know, this way of describing people and events shows up a lot in the book of Daniel and even in the book of Revelation. So kings and kingdoms, governments and human power systems are described in visions as beasts. You know, God wants us to see that if you pull back the curtains, there are dark and beastly spiritual forces at work. Especially when we're confronted with unbelief and idolatry and hostility. Hostility towards God's people. Beloved, whether it's preaching the gospel or pursuing the obedience of faith in this world, we do not, remember this, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This is why we must look to our Savior, our Redeemer. Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, a man of God's choosing. No, we must look to our Savior. We must remember what Christ has accomplished for us in the gospel. We must put on the full armor of God, look to Christ, and stand firm in the day of testing. We must pray and trust not in our own strength and smarts, but in His grace and His grace alone. That is sufficient for our endurance. Now these Chaldeans accused the Jews, but they were really bringing charges against three particular Jews. Jews that they were jealous of professionally. Verse 9, they declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Notice how they're questioning his judgment. You have appointed. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Notice how they accuse Daniel's friends. They appeal to Nebuchadnezzar's self, his, his sense of self-importance. And they make it sound as though these men were anti-government or anti-king. These men, so some years have passed, they're no longer youth. These men, they say, pay no attention to you, which was not true. No, they set aside this decree because it collided with God's command not to worship any other gods before him. Friends, when the values, priorities, and the commands of the kingdoms of this world collide with the kingdom of God, we must obey God rather than men. When the government or any other earthly authority forbids what God commands, or commands what God forbids, we must obey God rather than man. You know, this is why in Article 18, in our statement of faith, in our church statement of faith, we have this paragraph. Civil government is of divine appointment for the interests and good order of human society, and that government authorities are to be prayed for, conscientiously honored, and obeyed. 
So that's Romans 13, 1, 1 Peter 2, 13, 1 Timothy 2, 1 to 2. Except, obeyed except only in things opposed to the will of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the only Lord of the conscience, which means only his word ought to bind our conscience, and he is the prince of the kings of the earth. That's important too. That's Acts 5.29. So when the government says, we will not allow you to discipline your children, it's our Christian duty as citizens of the kingdom to say, we will not obey that command. Because we love God, we love His word, and we love our children, and we don't accept your definition of love. When the government says, you must not preach the gospel, Christians must say, we will not obey that command because we love God, and we love His Word, and we love lost sinners. Friends, it is precisely when kingdoms collide, that's when our allegiance is tested. That's when our allegiance should be made known to the world. Martin Luther once wrote, If I profess with loudest voice and clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God, except that little point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, then I'm not professing Christ, however boldly I may be professing Christ. You see, where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved. I'll say that again. Where the battle rages... There the loyalty of the soldier is proved. And to be steady on all the battlefield besides is mere flight and disgrace if he flinches at that one point. Always remember that. You can call yourself a Christian all you want. But if you are presented in God's providence, a situation in which you will have to pick between your parents telling you to marry an unbeliever, or face the uncomfortable consequences of a strained relationship with them, and you decide to marry an unbeliever out of pressure, you have just bowed down before the golden image of parental approval and the idol of marriage. Where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved. If Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had bowed down before the golden image, they would have violated the very first commandment. It would have been an act of covenant unfaithfulness and a demonstration of a lack of love towards the God of Israel, the high king of heaven. This is what the Lord said to his people at Sinai, Exodus 20, verses 2 to 5. Listen carefully. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. You see, idolatry in the Old Testament and the New Testament is described as spiritual adultery. A covenant unfaithfulness that provokes God. Beloved, it is not your tolerance and peaceful coexistence among people of other religions that will get you into trouble. It won't be those things. No, it will be your exclusive devotion to Christ. As long as you keep Him as one among many gods, the world will be okay with that. They are happy as long as your Jesus is an accommodating Jesus. 
As long as your Jesus is an inclusive Jesus, a Jesus who is nice enough to let people be, but the moment you say you will bow the knee to Christ alone, that's when the world will rage and gnash its teeth against you. you know, Jesus said to his disciples in John 15 verse 19, If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Friends, this enmity that, this enmity that God has himself placed between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent exists today and it existed then. You see that between the Chaldeans and Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. The Chaldeans tell Nebuchadnezzar about these men and then he summons them to explain themselves. Look at verses 13 to 15. Then Nebuchadnezzar in furious rage commanded that Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego be brought. So he gets angry whenever his idol of power is threatened. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now the fact that he asked them tells you that maybe he didn't readily trust these Chaldeans, something we've already seen in chapter 2. And so he gives them another chance. Verse 15, Now if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? You know, Nebuchadnezzar's confidence in his threat is that there is no God, not even their God, who can rescue these men from his hands or power. Now, it's tempting to think that Nebuchadnezzar has short-term memory loss. After all, Daniel in chapter 2 has already told him that the God of heaven was the one who had given him the kingdom and the power and the might and the glory. But it's not that he lacked that information. He did not believe it. If he did believe it, he would have responded differently to Daniel's interpretation of his dream. No, Nebuchadnezzar's response reminds us of another pompous king, Pharaoh. Remember Pharaoh in Exodus 5.2? Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. This is the song of every unrepentant heart. Who is the Lord? Or take the chief priests and the scribes of Israel who mocked Jesus on the cross saying, Oh, he trusts in God. Let God deliver him now. Let's see. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did believe in the God of their fathers. The God who had brought them into this land of exile. And the one who was sustaining them by his grace. They believed in him and the promise of a coming kingdom and its Messiah. And they were willing to risk their very lives because they had a sure Hope. They had a sure hope. And that brings us to our third point. Look at the perseverance of the faithful. Look at how these men responded. Look at verses 16 to 23. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Now they're not being rude. They're saying in effect, we're not going to rethink this. Our mind is made up. 
if this be so, if this is what you have decided, then hear this. Our God, whom we serve, is able. Did you hear that? Our God is able. This is the heart of our confidence, isn't it? Now to Him who is able to keep you. Our God is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and He will deliver us out of your hand, O King. Now the translation here is a little confusing. The text reads, Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace and deliver us from your hand or power, O King. So the emphasis is on God's ability. The emphasis is on God's ability. Verse 18, But if not... Even if he doesn't rescue us from the furnace, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Now, two things. Often at this point, people wonder, where's Daniel? And the answer to that is we simply don't know why he's absent. Chapter 2 tells us that he remained at the king's court, so it's possible that he was not present that day at Dura. But given the fact that everyone who was someone was present at that event, makes you wonder, doesn't it? It's also possible that Daniel was somewhere else. In chapter 8, verse 2, we see that he sometimes traveled outside of Babylon. So perhaps he was on official business, we don't know. But Daniel's absence actually helps us. It helps us focus on the point of this passage. It tells us who this book is really about. It's not about Daniel, it's about Daniel's God. The God who is able to sustain his people, the God who is able to deliver them even in exile. This is the God that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego trusted in. And then secondly, notice what the friends believe in. Their faith was in God's word. That's why they did not bow down to the image. But their faith was also in God's ability. They trusted that if the Lord willed, he was more than able to deliver them. Brothers and sisters, that's what biblical faith is. See, faith is not trusting that God will do whatever you want Him to do. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that you should not pray for deliverance from a trial. But biblical faith is trusting in God's Word and His sovereign power and wisdom. It's trusting in God for who He is. We trust in what He has revealed to us in the Scriptures, but we also trust that whatever God chooses to do, He is good and wise. So when a painful trial comes upon us, we must look to the cross and say that the Lord loves me. The Lord loves me. And whatever He's doing right now, He intends only good. See, true biblical faith says with Job, Though he may slay me, yet I will trust in him. Now, imagine the scene. In pagan Babylon, three men say no to the most powerful government in the ancient world. And it makes you wonder, doesn't it? Why only three? Why only three? Why isn't anyone else refusing to bow down? These men refused to bow down and worship this image and serve the king's agenda. Beloved, I wonder if you would be willing to do this if placed in a similar situation. Or would you try to reason your way out of it? I wonder if we would find company 
a fellowship of faithful believers who would stand with us? Or would our Christian friends try and talk us out of it? You know, one author imagined such a scene. And he writes that this is what someone might say to us today. You know, someone might say to us, our Christian friend might say to us, we all know that this idolatry is bogus. There's nothing real in it except the emperor wishing us to acknowledge his authority. Why won't you do that? What does it matter if we outwardly bow down to him? It doesn't mean that he controls our heads and our hearts. And if good men like you three, men of proven ability and integrity, if you refuse to bow down and get killed, then that'll make the situation even worse. What'll happen to us? You are top people. If you're not there to continue your powerful influence for good at the very highest levels of the state, what hope is there for the rest of us? And think of your wife and your children. What are they going to do if you throw your life away like this needlessly? No, 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 no. Take part in the ceremony. Take part for, for our sakes, for everyone else. Oh, we need you there in the corridors of power. Compromise for the greater good. Friends, I have five words for you. God is the greatest good. God is the greatest good. Psalm 63 verse 3, your steadfast love is better than life. See, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew that. You can change their names. You can't change what they love. They loved the God who had promised a Messiah and an everlasting kingdom, and they stood their ground. They were zealous for God's glory more than their own lives, and Nebuchadnezzar could not stomach that. There's someone more important than me? Worth dying for? You know, this is what makes people mad. When kingdoms clash, when they collide, when you choose to obey God instead of your sinful parents or sinful friends or employers, they get mad because you're saying, by your obedience, that there is someone more glorious than you who deserves my devotion, my time, my energy, and even my very life. You know, I'm so encouraged when I hear stories of some of our members telling their employers who in the UAE often act like they own us. I'm so encouraged when people take a stand and say, I need to go to church and be with God's people. And they're willing to count the cost. Brothers and sisters, Christ is worth your very life. What's a pay cut? You know, let the world know where your loyalties lie. Let the world know where your affections lie. Let them know who your king is. And when they look at you and they are flabbergasted by your actions, when they are confused, when they are surprised that you are willing to lose so much, tell them what you have gained. Tell them about the good news of the kingdom. Beloved, this is the life that Christ has called us to. He is worthy of all our worship because He created us and He redeemed us by His own blood. We belong to Him. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 37-39, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake 
will find it. So they stood their ground. And here's what Nebuchadnezzar thought of their confession. Verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. Once again, we get a glimpse of this power-hungry maniac, completely out of control, furious that his authority has been challenged. He's like a beast that rages. Verse 20. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Notice that even while sending these men to their death, Nebuchadnezzar is all about displays of power. He wants a powerful fire. He wants the strongest of his military men to bind these weak men. Notice how many times the author repeats the phrase, burning, fiery furnace in this passage, seven times. That gives us a picture of what life is like for the saints of God in Babylon. Friends, our calling is no different. It's no different. Not only have we been given the grace to believe, but we have been called to suffer for the sake of Christ. God uses fiery trials to test and to refine our faith. Look at verse 21. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments... And they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. The point being made here is that this was quick. They were thrown in with their clothes, which were inflammable. Verse 22. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You know, this is ironic. That when it comes to the fire, it is those who are the strongest who are consumed by the flames. It's also the saddest part of the story, I think. I mean, just think about the senseless death of these mighty men who, unlike Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, gave their lives for nothing. They perished. Verse 23, And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Nebuchadnezzar wanted to make a point He desired to make a name for himself. He erected a statue. He demanded worship. And when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to bow down to his image, he created a scene, didn't he? A big scene. But Nebuchadnezzar is about to find out that the God in whom these Hebrews trusted in, the God of heaven, the one to whom belongs all power and all glory, knows how to deliver his people without making a scene. Quietly. The one who has true power and true might, and he knows it, displays the humility of a quiet presence. That brings us to our fourth and final point. In this passage, we see the presence of a deliverer. Notice how God makes himself known in the book of Daniel. He is the one true God. The God of Daniel's fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's the creator of the heavens and the earth. He is the one true God who enters into covenant with sinners. He is the one true God who redeems his people from Egypt, the one who judges covenant unfaithfulness. He is the one true God who sets up kings and removes them. He is the one true God who is sovereign over history, the one true God who sustains his people who trust in him and worship him alone. He is the one true God who gives wisdom and understanding to his people, the one true God who reveals and controls the future. He knows the end from the beginning, and he will keep his promises, and he will set up an everlasting kingdom through his Messiah. And here we see 
that this one true God will not deliver from afar, but the God of heaven will stoop down and make his presence known to his people. See, Nebuchadnezzar looks intently at the furnace and he sees something that startles him, something that doesn't make sense. Look at verses 24 to 30. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound. They had been set free. Their bonds had been broken. I see them walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. See, Nebuchadnezzar looks at the furnace. This would have been made of brick, probably with an opening at the top where they'd have dropped in these men and it would have had an, uh, uh, an opening in the front so he could look through. He sees a human-like figure and he doesn't know what to make of it. He describes this fourth person as being like a son of the gods. You see, this king is a pagan and all that he's able to tell is that figure looks like a human but it also looks divine. In verse 28, look at verse 28. He identifies this figure as an angel. You know, often in the Old Testament, a mysterious figure called the angel of the Lord appears visibly. Unlike other angels, he bears the name of God. He accepts worship. Friends, this is a theophany, an appearance of God in visible form. And this appearance says something about him. Beloved, who else do you know? Who else do you know who enters into our existence, who enters into our suffering in order to remove our bonds and set us free from the power of the enemy? Do you know this deliverer? Do you know his name? Friends, this appearance and deliverance prefigures a greater deliverance when the Messiah promised to Israel entered into our sinful world to save us from our sins. What God revealed to Daniel in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, he fulfilled by sending his son who came from heaven and took on human flesh and died in our place to deliver us. And the thrust of the ministry of the apostles in the New Testament is to herald that good news that the Messiah is Jesus he is the fulfillment of all the promises of the Old Testament. This is the one who came to save us from our sins. And while Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were miraculously delivered from physical death in a furnace, Jesus delivers us from a much more horrifying furnace. You know, that furnace would make Nebuchadnezzar's furnace look like a matchstick fire. In the Gospel of Matthew, twice Jesus refers to hell as a fiery furnace. And this furnace is for everyone who does not worship the one true God and His Son, Jesus Christ. Friends, the good news of the gospel of the indestructible kingdom of God is that Jesus came. And He died on the cross for our transgressions. And He died for the idolatry of every sinner who would turn from their sin and put their trust in Him. When Jesus came, He came in obscurity. There was no grand dedication ceremony. No band called into play at his birth. No spectacular displays of power that would have wowed a sinful world. No, he came in weakness, quietness. And he purchased our salvation in weakness. And he went 
And when he went through his trial on the cross, he suffered alone, didn't he? He was forsaken so that those who trust in him would not only be forgiven of their sins, but would receive the presence of his spirit. Jesus did this so that we would never have to suffer alone in this age. He said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Friends, this is the God who delivers us from Satan, sin, and death. And today, he can be your deliverer if you repent of your sins and put your trust in him. Turn to Christ and you will know the comfort of his sustaining grace till he comes and consummates his kingdom. And when he does, that will be the time when sin, suffering, and death will be no more. But until that day, remember that he reigns. He reigns now as Messiah and King until he puts all his enemies under his feet. Not only did the Lord miraculously deliver Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that day, he sustained them, didn't he? He sustained them in the fire. We often forget that little detail. We think God rescued them from the fire. Yay, they lived. But he let them fall in. They were walking around until they were called out. He was with them in their trial, wasn't he? Sustaining them, strengthening them, preserving them. Brothers and sisters, this is what the Lord does for us in our trials as well. You know, God has rescued us from eternal death. He has not promised to rescue us from physical death in this life. There have been many Christian martyrs over the centuries. But he does promise to be with us in every trial. When through fiery trials your pathway shall lie, my grace all-sufficient shall be your supply. The flame shall not hurt you. I only design your dross, that means your sins, your impurities, your sins to consume and your gold to refine. Beloved, our trials are designed by God to expose our idols, our unbelief, so that we can put them to death at the foot of the cross, so that we can repent and continue trusting in Christ. You know, we will go through the fiery trial. But guess what? Our bonds are broken. We're free. We'll go through them as free men. You know, these men were there in the furnace until they were called out. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. I would have just said, no, you come in here. Verse 27, and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads were not singed, not burned. Their cloaks were not harmed. Remember, they were cast in with their clothes and no smell of fire. Imagine that. Not even the smell, not even a hint, no smell of fire had come upon them. Remember what he said, who is the God who will deliver you out of my power? That was his boast. Not only did they not perish, the fire that he had heated up seven times has had zero effect on them. Verse 28, Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angels his angel, and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. So right here from this pagan king's lips comes a true summary 
that is recorded for us. And this would have encouraged every Israelite in exile to trust in the God of Israel, to not fear anyone else but him, and to withstand whatever trial, even death, and not give in to idolatry. But Nebuchadnezzar still doesn't trust in God. Don't be impressed by that confession. You know, Nebuchadnezzar is like a news reporter reporting the news. Look here, blessed be the God, it's wonderful. He sent his angels, delivered his servants, trusted in him. You know, he is still not his God. God is their God, their own God. Verse 29, therefore I make a decree, another decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. And the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Again, higher posts, rewards. You know, the miraculous nature of, this, of their deliverance was inescapable. You know, Nebuchadnezzar now has to eat his words. Notice what he does. He still needs to come up on the top. He still needs to save face. He still needs to throw his royal weight around. And so like last time, he says, yay to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, praises him. And then he warns people in his kingdom, don't say anything offensive against this God. You know, we need to tolerate this God. He needs state protection. Anyone who says anything against him will have to deal with me, he says. You know, Nebuchadnezzar still needs to learn that God not only reveals mysteries and delivers his people, that he not only sets up kings, Nebuchadnezzar needs to learn that this God rules over him personally. He's going to learn that the hard way. We'll see that in the next chapter. But we must conclude. Beloved, the deliverance which God has accomplished for us in Christ is like the deliverance described in this passage. It is first and foremost God's deliverance. It's not a deliverance from all suffering and trials, but one which exists because God in Christ has himself experienced the flames of suffering and death. Remember that Jesus rose from the dead. And because he has conquered death, the bonds of sin have been broken and death has no power over us. And one day those who trust in him will rise from the dead and there will be no smell of death on us. Then shall come past the saying, death is swallowed up in victory. Beloved, the one who was with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will be with us in our trials. And one day he will call us out of our graves and give us new resurrection bodies that do not have the smell of death on them. This is the hope of every believer in Christ who stands up in faith, in defiance against the idols of this world. Church, remember that the purpose for our deliverance is the exclusive worship of Christ our King. So whatever trial you might be facing today, remember that Christ has won the victory and he will supply you with all the strength you need to stand firm in him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the comforting presence of your spirit. We thank you that because of the gospel, we can enjoy his presence. Lord, we pray that we would not forget that 
that we would not lean on our feelings in the midst of trial, but that we would look to this objective truth that Christ has conquered sin and death, that he has not left us as orphans, but that his spirit abides with us. And so, Lord, we pray that you would comfort us and sustain us by your grace. Cause us to stand firm in the face of every trial. May we make our allegiance known to you and not be ashamed of the gospel. Strengthen us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.